We're running out the roads, running out the hills, with no problems. Kick back from his mouth, gone deep. It's actually taken from uh, James Joyce.
great. You don't have to do anything. You can you can give me a five star review if you really want to help help out my podcast. For awesomeness, music, all to come and do. Lunch is served.
Sensual World Full Album Wild Gardening. Let me introduce to you. Thank you. 
Gosling taking a bath. Hashtag KVOA. Hashtag KGUN9. Hashtag Tucson. Hashtag Arizona. Hashtag KLPX. Hashtag cute. Hashtag animal. Hashtag goose. Hashtag baby. Hashtag FYP, hashtag for you, hashtag for you page. <laughs> Check this out. Chick. Chick out. So how are you doing, girl? Chick. Chick. Get it? Chick it out. Chick. This. Out. looking at him like wow not something you get to see every day <laughs> kind of like taking the point of view yeah. use some trending music see what's uh um res talk Res humor. Ah! 
purse. Water is on the computer. Hiya. Pam Vance follows me. Follow back. Still a horn missing work. Bubber cut wow, doing walk gym after having a quickie in Pastor John's car. Pastor John. Bubber claims she missed a vote as a protest for CNN's camera caught her running out the house steps as it still a horn missing work. Six Phelps. She should be expelled for this lying blatantly to the public and insurrection. Fucking the fucking whore. Bannon was issued a federal grand jury subpoena relating to the investigation into January 6th, ha ha ha, and Donald Trump's 2020 election interference in late May, reports MSNBC. The subpoena was for both documents and testimony. Nah ha. Nah ha. Didn't did he do his five months prison yet? We should appeal that decision to allow him to stay out of jail until the appeal exclamation point. The fucking traitor. The So I said, did he do his five months prison yet? We should appeal that decision to allow him to stay out of jail until the appeal. The effing traitor. How's it going, little, do little Gaza? My little Gaza. Okay, um, let's get back to the show, Trista. Okay. Gladly. Okay, let's see what else might touch. Publishing these days, these moments. 
Trump says he has been indicted in probe over handling of sensitive government documents. CBS News. of um, folk music, of um, English music hall. Bob Dylan. Um, Kate's truly a one-off. Um, she doesn't really slot into any category, and I think that's what makes her so incredibly special. She so, never uh, went on tour. British female she only did studio albums, she did it all herself. And then you arrive at Kate Brooks, so there is, there is no precedent. She absolutely was unique. I mean, she really was a one-off. There had never been anybody like her before. From a remarkably young age, she had begun to compose her own material on the family's upright piano. While still in her early teens, she unofficially auditioned for family friend and Pink Floyd guitarist Dave Gilmore. Wow. It would be this encounter that would drastically change her life and set her on the road to pop success. I was about to... 15, 16, and we thought it would be really interesting to see if I could get some of my songs published. A friend of family named Dave Gilmore, who at that time was looking for talent to either be involved with or produce or encourage, and he came down to hear some of my songs as part of the, uh, the scouting process. And I think he was intrigued enough to um, feel that it was worth mastering the demos and presenting them record companies in that form. He arranged this really remarkable all singing, all dancing demo where Kate went to Abbey Road and Dave hired a 30-piece orchestra and they made three tracks, a saxophone song, The Man with the Child in His Eyes and the other one, 
Wow. Uh, I didn't know that. David Gilmore. That's awesome. Thank you, David Gilmore. That uh, gets lost in the mist of time. Uh, anyway, they were terrific. They impressed the EMI, and that's how the ball started rolling, and uh, EMI signed this development deal with her. They gave her some money, and they gave her a few years just to develop her sound. That would be unheard of today in that way. Yeah. EMI were prepared to take a chance on a, an unknown artist and give her time, and a female artist at that, which was very unusual. Kate used the time EMI had offered her to train and develop as an artist. She left school and concentrated on getting experience playing live, composing new material and attending singing lessons. It was also during this period that she began to train with dancer and mime artist Lindsay Kemp, an experience that would deeply affect the way in which she presented her own work. I knew that I wanted to do music, um, but I also knew that there was something missing from the expression. And I was very lucky just to see an ad uh, in the paper. Uh, I went to see a, a show, and it was Lindsay Kemp. And uh, really, I'd never seen anything like it before. And what he was doing was he was using movement without any sound at all. Something at all. Seen. And he was expressing so much, probably more than the Russians would express with their mouths. And it suddenly dawned on me that there was a whole new world of expression that I hadn't even realised. I was at school, and it was a few months after that I decided to leave school and to throw myself into the, the world of music. And dance seems to be something that's such a parallel to it, but I felt it, it was just for me, uh, just in terms of being a performer, something that I knew nothing about. It's all part of her expressing music and using, and she does dance well. She's using, using her body like an instrument in the way that she uses her voice like an instrument. Midway through 1977, it was decided that Kate was finally ready to record her debut album. Sessions for what would become The Kick Inside started at Abbey Road Studios at the end of the wow. summer. We knew nothing about Kate Bouchette. And uh, we just assumed that this was another young, young girl, pop singer, etc. And we, we turned up on the session, and there she was. I think she was 19. And, um, and we started working. And within, I don't know, 20 minutes, half an hour, we, we realized that we were not working with, with your, your average pop singer. We were working with a very talented young lady. Both, both in terms of, of composing and, and in lyric writing. When all of us came out of that first, first session, we all went to the, to the canteen of the bar, whatever it was. And we thought, well, you know, either she's going to absolutely bomb, or she's going to start a complete revolution. You know, and of course, none of us knew which. EMI similarly did not know quite what to expect from the 19-year-old's first record. They decided to release one of her most conventional tracks, The Man with the Child in His Eyes. However, Kate had different ideas and insisted that her first single should be the haunting Gathering Hopes. 
A song based on Emily Bronte's classic 19th century novel of the same name. Classic single. Perfect. Perfecto. 
And of course, the first British number one written by a British woman. It was the it was a combination of the piano um, and Kate's voice um, just racing up and down the octave. Um, it was a very startling sound. Um, it was totally new. We hadn't heard anything like it before. which is a long guitar solo on the piano. But what is, is so wonderful about it is that it is at times a vamp on the melody, almost jazz-like, but then at times it is the melody. It's Kate as a guitar string. And at the exact fade-out, it's exactly the same notes as Kate singing. So there is almost a loop through the whole four and a half minutes of this record. Even though she's gone, she's still there echoing in your mind, which is perfect for the haunting of the record. I mean, it is a landmark in British pop music. Uh, the voice is quite remarkable. I mean, the voice quite remarkable. takes you places no other voice went. Kate really uses her voice in a very creative way, a very theatrical way. And I think it's something that she's modified over the years. That the, the earlier album, sometimes it felt as if she was um, uh, going up and down the octaves and using strange things for the sake of it, almost slightly self-conscious. Um, whereas with later albums, it's calmer and she just sings um, and there's an intense beauty to her voice. And she just left it. Really. But on some of the early records like Brother and Hearts, she uses her voice to real dramatic effect and really hard and then and then sweeping down low. The staggering success of Wuthering Heights made Kate an instant celebrity. However, people were already beginning to question whether, like Emily Bronte, Bush would only be capable of one truly great work. Before the album came out, a lot of people thought, well, she's never going to be able to do anything like this. I mean, this is such a fluke. <laughs> Everything about it is a fluke. The voice is a fluke. The subject is a fluke. So, she quite wisely didn't duplicate it. And went the other way and brought out one of her piano-based tracks, The Man with the Child's Design. <laughs> This was originally the one that got her her record deal at PMI. It's a beautiful ballad, it's really melodic, but uh, as always with Kate Bush, it's never straightforward, it's quite ambiguous. The meaning of the lyrics, it could be about the daughter waiting for her father, it could be about um, a woman waiting for her lover. There's, there's a real ambiguity there, and it's also, it, it has a real beauty, but it's also a little bit chilling as well, and very dreamlike. It's just her singing melodically in that uh, kind of contralto, which is her, is her basic voice, and singing very sweetly and roundly, and you hear what a lovely singer she is.
very high with the fantasy around a novel and where Capers herself stands in that, who would know uh, if she enjoyed the whole thing uh, very much. But with this song, she's right in there. And uh, as a teenage girl, as now, I'm sure, uh, she's a very sensual, sexual person. And the two words go together in connection with Kate Bush just all the time. You've got to say both of those things or know both of those things about her. Uh, that, uh, that's where a lot of her inspiration and her power flows from, is from being a sensual person and enjoying being a sensual person and feeling that that's a force for good in the world. It's as big as that to her. And she cares about it that much. And of course, it's an element of love, but in the way she writes, I think that's only it applies to uh, it's the sensual. That side of women's sexuality hadn't really been acknowledged or expressed um, because the 70s, even though that there, were, there was a sort of real feminist movement, I think that hadn't penetrated into the mainstream. And I think people still thought along tram lines when it came to the sexes and what men were supposed to feel and women were supposed to feel. So Kate sort of really dashed out on that. Came out with some something that was quite daring. Kate Bush's debut album, The Kick Inside, was released on the 17th of February 1978. Despite her young age, the record is a remarkably mature and sophisticated piece of work. I think the best comment I ever read about the first album, The Kick Inside, is somebody described it as a cross between Lindsay DePaul and Angela Carter, the feminist novelist. And I thought that was absolutely brilliant because that really does sum up the two things that are going on uh, on that record. Um, you know, she is this pop princess. She's not quite Lindsay DePaul, but you, know, you can see where that's coming from. And then a song like The Kick Inside itself, which is, uh, you know, this dark, dark song. Suicide note from from a girl who's carrying the child of her own brother. Um, you know, and then there are other songs on the album about oh. period pains and, and, and uh, all kinds of subjects that uh, very few people could ever imagine writing about in in a pop song. And um, that's quite a special combination. And uh, I think made as a unique debut album and also contributed to this thing of really not knowing quite what she was. Was she cat? Was she not? The astounding success of her first album confirmed Kate's celebrity status, an aspect of her career that she would become increasingly less comfortable with over the years. Thank you. 
We'd all be happy with that. So, uh, I do thank you. After the completion of the tour, Kate returned to Abbey Road to record her third studio album. The first single to be released from the new record was Breathing, a song that showed a marked change in the direction of her writing. Sometime around 1979, 1980, probably after the tour, she just started looking outwards, and here at CMD, with the United States, with the Queen and the Commons, and so forth, she addressed this in, in an absolutely unique way, uh, the season, where, I mean, you know, a lot of people would probably write songs about the new tour of the but who else would have the very physical song, you've got the sense of labour breathing in and out, the last thing gradually, gradually um, moving out of the baby's body. And you realise after that she's singing about a child in the womb who's been poisoned by plutonium, um, who can't breathe. It's really quite a shocking song. It has a beautiful melody, but it's really quite shocking underneath. And then towards the end, it drifts in and out as, as the last expires. Just that repeated breathing in out, in out. I mean, the 
conceit is, is simple enough than this woman testing the man's fidelity. Uh, but what the song is actually about is uh, much deeper than that, of course, because this woman who's grown old and wrinkled or, or whatever, but she still feels the same young girl inside. And, you know, can the man still recognise what it was that he fell in love with in this girl all these years earlier? And with Babushka, you reach the conclusion that the wife dressed up as the mystery woman, so this is sort of a very uh, Arabian night sort of feel for it, and she comes and meets her husband, she's in disguise, and the husband's very excited about her, though he wasn't excited about her as the wife, and so it ends in that moment of the meeting. And so there is actually, despite it, that a humorous, farcical tale, there is also a, a certain point of view about it. For the song, this is the right look. And this song is so touching. It's a direct message about how if you have war, you're going to have young men who dream of being soldiers go off and become soldiers and don't come back. And the life is lost. It doesn't that I've got to a little bit of time and uh, it was very pleasing for me to watch the ideas I'd thought of actually working beautifully and watching it on the screen. It really was a treat that one and 
I think that's the first time ever with anything I've done that I can actually sit back and say, I like that. That's the only thing I would know that I can sit there and say, look at that, that's out of place. And... At the end of the year, Kate released the Christmas single December Will Be Magic Again and then retreated from the public eye. She began writing it would become The Dreaming, her first record entirely produced by herself. The production would be deeply affected by a profound change in popular music. The instruments on which musicians composed their material began to change as new technology made new sounds suddenly easily accessible. Uh, 
Bad dog! As far as uh, selling an album goes. But again, it's one of the real one-offs. What are you doing, little shitheads? That song is one of my all-time favourites of hers. Hey! Uh, it's three minutes on the radio, or four minutes perhaps. It's uh, enormously powerful. You need to get rid of some of the dogs! Fine hogs! Get out of here! Go on, scram! production of The Dreaming, the record was finally ready for release in September of 1982. Kate has always said, EMI saw it as my mad record. Uh, they saw it as a commercial uh, suicide note. And in a sense, because that was the uh, feeling in the record company, you know how these things have their effects. Uh, it was sort of self-fulfilling prophecy. Uh, I'm sure they put some work into it, but they weren't working with confidence, to say the least. Uh, and so that will have played into it being a commercial failure. Um, I don't feel it, it went away from the mainstream. I mean, I, whenever you make an album, you just do it and you hope all the songs are good and that you're trying to express what you want at that time. And I feel that I've done that, certainly with the last three albums. But I have to say, with the benefit of just, you know, the uh, 23 years uh, of hindsight, uh, that I think bad reviews were uh, a terrible mistake. Uh, that is a really powerful album. Uh, some say it's her best, and I think that's uh, a good argument. I might think it's her best on reflection. Uh, some of those tracks are just knockout. Uh, the title track, what a piece of work that is. <laughs> Aborigines dream time, their walkabout time, their spiritual uh, wandering that they do, as we've been advised in no end of documentaries. And uh, so she took that idea and then looked at uh, the politics of it, how the Aborigines have been dispossessed of their land uh, when uh, we uh, colonized Australia. She does that amazingly enough in a rather odd comic setting which to my mind doesn't devalue uh, the subject matter or the argument. Uh, she brings in Rolf Harris to play didgeridoo. 
Sorry, there's one very famous Australian featured on this album who you're not used to finding on, on, on rock records. Uh, Rolf Harris. Yes. He, he, this is correct, is it? He yes. plays the didgeridoo on that track. Yes, he does. I think it's, uh, it's interesting how people sort of go, well, Paris. Well, he's not the sort of person you think used to seeing in credits, you know, no, along with you. He's not often mentioned on this program. No. Yeah. But he is a very good didgeridoo player, which is why we used him. Well, you have to go for the first, don't yeah. you? Now, also, on that track, you employed, I think, Percy Edwards to supply the kind of synthesized jungle backing. This is the bird impression. The bird impression yeah. and all the animals. Yes. yes. Well, um, I knew that in the choruses we wanted to create a, a feeling of the landscape and obviously there are a lot of Australian animals and mm. the sounds are very reminiscent of the environment and of course Percy could come along and give us a selection of at least ten different Australian animals. With both the album and single receiving critical flack, Kate retreated from the public gaze once more. She would remain silent for three years, working on what has become widely seen as her masterpiece. During this time, she designed and built her own studio, allowing her more flexibility in terms of her recording. You went away on your own service. Yes, I wanted to make sure that uh, we got our own studio together, that we could make through with us. And as I told in the last album, moving from studio to studio, and uh, now we've got our own place and everything is brilliant. It makes such a difference. Is it difficult choosing the right sort of gear to put in there, the right people to work within that studio and the location, of course? I think it, it's really good because you can get everything you want in one studio, which isn't always easy when you're in a studio. What were you looking for? What makes your studio special for you? Well, it's got all the environmental things that we want, the right kind of sound and rooms, and we've got all the outboard equipment and the right kind of speakers and everything. It's uh, what we want, which is why we did it. Kate would finally return in the summer of 1985 and present arguably the most complete and powerful work of her entire career. This new period opened up the release of Running Up That Hill in August 1985. It quickly rose to number three in the charts, making it her most successful single since Wuthering Heights. <laughs> Like Wuthering Heights, EMI did not want this song as a single. Um, she fought them for it, and, uh, and again, she won. Uh, with a slight compromise with the change of that, because it was originally called Deal with God. Running up that hill, of course, officially, the title is Running up that hill, brackets, deal with God. And that's really important. The brackets is Kate Bush stamping her foot and protesting because that deal with God is her title for that song. She insists she still calls that song Deal with God. That was one she lost in her uh, uh, endless uh, disputations with EMI, friendly disputations, creative disputations. That one she lost, though.
up that hill is a great record, period. And it is her biggest single in Britain since Wuthering Heights, gets number three, and it is her first top 30 single in America. It's very accessible. And here, the synthesizer is used in a very atmospheric way. She manages to really create an atmosphere of longing and quest. This astonishing thing is happening. The deal we've got to swap identities and stuff. Again, one of these, you know, just uh, crossing away sort of little ideas for a pop song. So you're going to swap identity with someone so you can see the world from their point of view. And how would that work out? Uh, you know, it may, it may be about a love affair. Uh, if you could go into your lover's shoes and look at you as they see you, what would be going... You know, it's just another, just a fantastic piece of imagination translated into a, re a really a lyric that really nails it. It's a great hook line, of course. Uh, and uh, a brilliantly conceived piece of music to, to bring out the sort of the passion of the madness of the, the urgency of this idea. Perfect blending of the synthesizer and the drum machine. And, uh, I guess it achieves what she hadn't done on the previous record, and in, in, indeed synth-pop was struggling to do, which was to marry genuine emotion and a, a soulfulness, if you like, with technology. That was what was lacking, perhaps, on the previous level, and, and, and here, we come together. And indeed, they do on the whole album. The album, The Hounds of Love, entered the charts at number one, and has since become regarded as one of the seminal albums of the 1980s. I think that was going along a certain trajectory that was windy and a little bit... But she walked away a bit, really, and that wasn't really relevant. And then she came out with Hounds of Love, which was full of so many different influences, um, really picking up on emerging dance music and world music, which was huge at that point. Um, and the, the lyrics and the music worked together in a way. It was a real peak in her career. It was just almost like the summation of everything that she'd done up to that point. House of Love is undoubtedly the masterpiece. Um, I mean, one of the extraordinary things about that record is, is it's self-confidence, because after The Dreaming, which didn't sell and wasn't regarded as a success, and had been the first album that she produced totally herself, uh, you know, she, she could have taken a real knock from that. Um, but it doesn't seem to have had that effect at all. The second side of the record contains a series of songs known collectively as the Ninth Wave. Pink Floyd often did this on their early records, which is that you put a bunch of uh, songs on one side, one side, vinyl, and uh, you put a concept on the other side. Well, wisely, I would imagine, Kate didn't just do one side as a, as a continuous track, which was the old Pink Floyd way, uh, but she did a bunch of songs on the and they are seen to be dead. At least I think that's a good part of it. Maybe there's a cycle of life and rebirth going on there. Inspired um, by this life. And it sounds like it would be as well. And again, it's, it's the attention to every last 
sound, and in both in terms of, of the voice, in which she uses every sort of vocal trick in the book to, to create every sort of nuance of emotion. Uh, but then in the actual sounds themselves, I mean, there's a wonderful story, for example, about the, the ways that they recorded, which occur between the first and second track of the cycle. And uh, she insisted that we were redone because they were the right kind of ways. Infinitesimal attention to beauty. Cloudbusting, another extraordinary single that existed in its own time and space.
Nothing less. The sensual world is very bad. It's kind of, uh, it's kind of Joyce, uh, from Beauty. Uh, and the final passage, I believe. Not the only person who's ever been able to get through you, please. But, uh, I understand that uh, what she wrote is derived from the final passage of Beauty, a long internal monologue by the character Molly Bloom. actually wanted to set the music, but uh, James Joyce's estate refused her permission to do that, so she had to, to write her own version of it, which I believe she does quite wonderfully, and uh, she has, it's, it's a beautifully expressed, highly sensual lyric, but with her singing and the music exactly fitting what she's on about as well. Too. Oh, I want rubber band girl in a way it takes the like to, to like, the mm. of the kicking side. It, I don't think at that stage she was under pressure to, to duplicate the I think she was just couldn't. I mean, she had a backlog of songs anyway that she'd been writing for years. And I think this was just a continuation of the kicking side. I just think that the second album suffered just a little. Because we're not having enough time in between to really write and uh, produce new stuff and really uh, produce the The rushed release of the record has often been blamed for what some perceive as Kate's weakest album. Despite these criticisms, Lionheart does contain some truly remarkable material. The first single to be released from Lionheart was the extremely theatrical Hammer Horror which, in contrast to its predecessors, was not such a chart success. However, the second single from the record, Wow, proved to be a far more popular release. Hitting the 
Vaseline and did the video just in case you didn't get the point you touch a fan at that point. So that's what we're talking about is this guy is gay. Yes, and she wanted to know that. Hitting the Vaseline. I know that everybody at radio level understood what that was about, but hey, so what? They let it, you know, they let it go. In those days, anything went. There was no, none of the self-awareness that came in in the 1990s at radio level. And uh, people liked it. But by that time, the album was out, it was the second single, so it stopped at number 14 of it. But that didn't mean that people didn't like it more than that. They knew it. But many of them had the album. The truth is, the nature of the album was being sharply into focus when, in April 1979, Kate embarked upon her one and only tour. The show's ambitious production design, costumes, and set pieces arguably became the template for the way in which all modern pop concerts are staged. Fucking kidding me, wow. Yeah. 
there. We'd all be happy about that, but uh, I dare say to you. After the completion of the tour, Kate returned to Abbey Road to record her third studio album. The first single to be released from the new record was Breathing, a song that showed a marked change in the direction of her writing. Sometime around 1979-80, probably after the tour, she just start looking outwards. And here at CND, with the American bases of Green and Common and so on and so forth, she addressed this in, in an absolutely unique way uh, in the breathing, where, I mean, you know, a lot of people were probably writing songs about nuclear destruction at that time. Um, but who else could have seen it through the eyes of an unborn child? sense of laboured breathing in and out, the life force gradually, gradually um, leaving um, this baby's body. And you realise after a while she's singing about a child in the womb who's been poisoned by plutonium, um, who can't breathe. It's really quite a shocking song. It has a beautiful melody, but it's really quite shocking underneath. And then towards the end it drifts in and out as, as the life expires. Just that repeated breathing in, out, in, out. Uh, you really feel it. It's a very physical, I suppose you'd say visceral feeling you get off that song. It's very tough, very rough. The video only emphasised it. I mean, 
think is, is simple enough, uh, this woman testing a man's fidelity. Uh, but what the song is actually about is uh, much deeper than that, of course, because you know, the woman has grown you know, old and wrinkled or, or whatever, but she still feels the same young girl inside. And, you know, can the man still recognise what it was that he fell in love with in this girl all these years earlier? And with Babushka, you reach the conclusion that the wife dressed up as the mystery woman, so this is sort of a very uh, Arabian night sort of feel for it. Uh, she comes and meets her husband, she's in disguise, and the husband's very excited about her, though he wasn't excited about her as the wife, and so there's, it ends in that moment of the meeting. So there is actually, despite it's that, a humorous, farcical tale, there is also a... Uh, a certain poignancy about it. Somehow the word babushka is is very appetizing for radio. <laughs> uh, you know, in the in the late fifties, do was a big deal, and nonsense syllables. Shanana were really popular. Well, babushka, although it is a word in Russian, sounds like nonsense syllables as well. And they're nonsense syllables that go together very well. Huh. And uh, I think this, this unknowingly appeals to the child in a lot of people. Never Forever was finally released on the 11th of September 1980 and quickly rose to the top of the album chart, making it the first album by a British female artist to reach number one. To promote the album, EMI decided to release a third single from the record, Army Dreamers. again using her body as a canvas uh, to uh, project several different kinds of visual image. Not an image that she's going to stay with, but for the song, this is the right look. And this song is so touching. It's a direct message about how if you have war, you're going to have young men who dream of being soldiers go off and Become soldiers and don't come out. And the life is lost. It doesn't happen. To me, that's the closest that I've got to a little bit of film. And uh, it is very amazing for me to watch the idea of the actually working beautifully and um, watching it on the screen. It really was a treat that way. Um, I 
think that's the first time I've ever done anything I've done. I can actually sit back and say, I like that. That's the only thing. Everything else I can sit there and look at that and at the end of the year, Kate released the Christmas single December Will Be Magic Again and then retreated from the public eye. She began work on what would become The Dreaming, her first record entirely produced by herself. The production would be deeply affected by a profound change in popular music. The instruments on which musicians composed their material began to change as new technology made new sounds suddenly easily accessible. Love Ultra Box. The early 80s was really a musical revolution in terms of the synthesizer, and that completely altered the texture of pop music. And also, it was um, a key sound in the sort of post punk bands like Ultra Box. Heaven 17, ABC as well. There was a whole new pop sound that was coming through. Um, and it was Kate Punk. And I think Kate picked up on all these influences when she was dreaming. And yeah, you've got these things called Fairlights, which is the first kind of thing that uh, build up everything in, into this synthesizer and then mess about with it, uh, push things around in all sorts of new ways, which are, of course, uh, completely uh, accepted nowadays. But it was... Uh, uh, the favourite toy of the time, very expensive, but uh, it was it was a great toy. Things like Fairlights. Uh, Kate was one of the early purchasers and certainly used it to the full. We were working on the third album, and there was a guy uh, basically exhibiting the Fairlight, bringing it round to people to show them, and he brought it in to the studio because uh, they thought I'd be interested, and I was very. So did you start tinkling around on it? And <laughs> well, as soon as it, it was there, it was something I think I'd been looking for for a long time. The ability to be able to sample any sound that you want and then play that is something that songwriters dream of, really. And um, it went straight on to nearly every track on the album. But the other strange thing about uh, Kate's actual uh, influences and reactions at the time was, which partly relates to electronics, is that uh, she got uh, influenced by Peter Gabriel's method of songwriting at that time. And Peter Gabriel, in his uh, third or fourth album, he had started to move into writing to a rhythm track. He was not starting with uh, a lyric, he wasn't starting with a melody, he was starting with a rhythm track, a beatbox thing. So here we are, this is electronic beat. Kate saw Peter doing that, and at least to an appreciable degree, she adopted that. As Kate continued to work on the dreaming, which was now entering its second year of production, EMI made the strange decision to release a single from the album a full year prior to the album's release. That single was sat in your lap. EMI used Sat in Your Lap as a preview to the album, except the year before, so that, uh, that's not ever such a good move as far as uh, selling an album goes. 
but again it's one of her real one-off strange singles isn't it it's uh, i think it's absolutely uh, stunning that song is one of my all-time favorites of hers uh but it's three minutes on the radio or four minutes perhaps it's uh, it's enormously powerful chaotic it's um one of those records that is full of disruptive rhythms um her voice is pretty wild it's all over the place it's really insistent um it's a very confrontational record but i think people responded to that there was a real passion in it that people responded to but it's interesting because it's almost frank zapparish in its um sense of parody in the way she plays with different time signatures after the slow and complicated production of the dreaming the record was finally ready for release in the september of 1982 at the point of its release the record did not receive universal acclaim and to this day remains an album that divides its listeners kate has always said emi saw it as my mad record <laughs> uh, they saw it as a commercial uh, suicide note <laughs> and in a sense because that was the uh, feeling in the record company you know how these things have their effects uh, it was sort of self-fulfilling prophecy uh, i'm sure they put some work into it but they weren't working with confidence to say the least uh, and so that will have played into um, I don't feel it, it went away from the mainstream. I mean, I, whenever you make an album, you just do it and you hope all the songs are good and that you're trying to express what you want at that time. And I feel that I've done that certainly with the last three albums. But I have to say, with the benefit of just, you know, the uh, 23 years uh, of hindsight, uh, that I think bad reviews were uh, a terrible mistake. Uh, that is a really powerful album. Uh, some say it's her best and i think that's uh, a good argument i might think it's her best on reflection uh, some of those tracks are just knockout uh, the title track what a piece of work that is <laughs> amazingly enough in a rather odd comic setting which to my mind doesn't devalue uh, the subject matter or the argument uh, she brings in Rolf Harris to play Didgeridoo 
coming up that hill is a great record. Period. And it is her biggest single in Britain since Wuthering Heights, gets number three. And it is her first top 30 single in America. It's very accessible. And here, the synthesizer is used in a very atmospheric way. She manages to, to really create an atmosphere of longing. And this is something that is happening, but still with God. To swap identity with someone. Again, one of these, you know, just uh, away from little ideas for a pop star. So you're going to swap identity with someone so that you can see the world from their point of view. And how would that work out? Uh, you know, it may, it may be about a love affair. Uh, if you could turn to your leather shoes and look at you as they see you, what would be going on? You know, it's just another just a fantastic piece of imagination translated into a, re a really a lyric that really nails it with a great and a brilliantly conceived composition to, to bring out the sort of the passion of the madness of the perfect blending of the synthesizer and the drum machine and uh, I guess it achieved what she hadn't done on the previous record, and in, in, indeed, synth pop was struggling to do, which was to marry genuine emotion and a, a soulfulness, if you like, with the technology. That was what was lacking, perhaps, on the previous record, and, and, and here, the two come together. And indeed, they do on the whole album. The album, The Hounds of Love, entered the charts at number one and has since become regarded as one of the seminal albums of the 1980s. I think we felt that Kate was going along a certain trajectory that was windy, a little bit... Uh, that she'd lost her way a bit, really, and that wasn't really relevant. And then she came out with Hounds of Love, which was full of so many different influences, um, really picking up on emerging dance music, on world music, which was huge at that point. Um, and the, the lyrics and the music worked together in a way. It was a real piece in her career, which was almost like the summation of everything that she'd done up to that point. How's of love is undoubtedly um, I mean, one of the extraordinary things about that record is it has confidence because after the dreaming, which didn't sell and wasn't regarded as a success, it had been the first album that she produced totally herself. Uh, you know, she, she could have taken a real knock from that. Um, but it doesn't seem to have had that effect at all. The second side of the record contains a series of songs known collectively as the Ninth Wave. Chris Floyd often did this on their early records, which is that you put a bunch of uh, songs on one side, side <laughs> as in vinyl, and uh, you put a concept on the other side. Wisely, I would imagine, Kate didn't just do one side as a, as a continuous track, which is the old Chris Floyd way, uh, but she did a bunch of songs that were to some degree, and they are themes of what it's like to be dead, at least, I think that's a, a good part of it. Clearly there's this cycle of life and rebirth going on there, um, inspired by this line from Tennyson. And it sounds absolutely extraordinary as well, and again, it's, it's the attention to every last 
little sound, I mean, both in terms of, of the voice, in which she uses every sort of vocal trick in the book to, to create every sort of nuance of emotion. Uh, but then in the actual sounds themselves, I mean, there's this wonderful story, for example, about uh, the ways that they recorded which occur between the first and second track in the cycle. And uh, the instances were, re were redone because they weren't the right kind of ways. Infinitesimal attention to beauty. Cloud Busting, another extraordinary single that existed in its own little tiny space.
interest in what she wrote is derived from the final passage of Euclidean, a long internal monologue by the character Bonnie Bloom, uh, which Kate actually wanted to set to music, but uh, James Joyce's estate refused the permission to do that. So she had to, to write her own version of it, which I believe she does quite wonderfully. And uh, she has, it's, it's beautifully expressed, highly sensual lyrics, but with her singing and the music exactly fitting what she's all about as well.
And yet on this album, a lot of people have that. Oh, my God. 
momentum was, uh, I think, uh, a really good comeback, which is what it was after all these years, of course, after 13 years. King of the Mountain um, is an interesting song, again, because in a way she's come full circle because she's bringing up the haunting theme that she established in Fodling Heights, and you feel the ghost of Elvis um, permeating your soul. Does it seem that there's, there's an inflection in her voice, a sort of Elvis inflection in her voice, and she's thinking about the king? And it's quite it's just amusing on why would someone who's got so much money for his house with quite a chunk. Here she is reflecting on Elvis and what the greatest of them all did with his actual life outside of being the king, uh, the millionaire who wasted his money on junk, as she says. <laughs> The album was released under the name Ariel on Monday the 7th of November and quickly made its way to number three in the charts. What a brilliant move, career move it turned out to be waiting 13 years to make a record because I can't ever remember any record that, that has been that kind of anticipation and build-up towards. I mean, weeks before anybody had heard a single note uh, people were writing thousand-word articles in broadsheet newspapers about what it might sound like. Um, so the anticipation was enormous. Did it live up to it? Um, I think it pretty much did. I think Ariel is um, a wonderful record. It's one of Kate's best. Absolute best. I love that it's a double album. I love that she takes her time. And it reflects 13 years, yeah, I feel it's a real woman's record and that it really reflects what she's been going through, um, having a small child and being at home all day and that sense of isolation and dislocation. It's there in songs like Mrs. Bartolozzi, which is so daring to sing a song about a washing machine um, and uh, just have a chorus that is washing machine, washing machine. Um, but it, for me, it, it really encapsulates um, what it feels like to be at home. The fact that motherhood has had such a profound impact on her. You know, the previous record had been about loss. This record is about uh, redemption, really. She found it through motherhood, and although there are some profound themes on the record, after the Red Shoes, this is Kate Bush finding her sunny upland. And nobody is going to begrudge her that. Kate Bush's comeback shocked many critics, only serving to further demonstrate the unpredictable genius of this unique recording artist. Over the last three decades, she has been one of the most innovative and enduring voices in modern music, ensuring her place as a true pop icon. Her music is so intensely private, and I think that is really, really quite unique. I mean, you you sort of come away from a from a Kate album, and you know, in some ways, you're you're sort of blushing, you know, because she's revealed a little bit of her soul to you. Just stepping outside every cliche, every fixed uh, parameter. unique artist, both in the songwriting and in the way she's operated within the pop world.
Watch out, kitty cat.
the night. to the show. What's going on with this fucking indictment? Or in the comments. I don't remember who wrote this, but I agree wholeheartedly. There are two types of people in the world. Those who love Kate Bush and those who are wrong. <laughs> Spot on. I said, that's awesome. Thank you, David Gilmore. Mentored her. She was a teenager. I don't remember who... Yeah. Her creativity is perfectly balanced with her intelligence. <laughs> the Dreaming has always been my absolute favorite Let Kate Bush album. She walked into the studio and performed Weathering Heights in one take. Unbelievable. I'd call her one of the most unique artists of either gender. So many young artists in their teens would be happy to get a deal that they'd allow themselves to be packaged and promoted however the label wanted. Kate has a sense of self-advance for her age and wouldn't be boxed in. I'm a 56-year-old lifelong metalhead, and you'll get no argument from me here. Our Kate's a national treasure, and us Brits won't have anything said about her. There's only word for Kate Bush, and that word is inimitable. She is quite simply unrivaled perfection. I was 17 and 78. When Weathering Heights was released, and there was nothing like it at the time, nothing. It was a game changer and blew me away, and I've been a fan ever since. Kate has a unique vocal style and a beauty to her songwriting. She did all that. She has done her own way on her terms. Uh, one of the few artists who I think deserves to be called a musical genius. Bye.